Hi, this is Ron Darling with SNY TV. Um, you know me from covering the Mets, and uh, I hope you get a chance to listen to Mets Musings with Gary Mack. I had a great time. I hope you do, too. Mets Musings is an unofficial, independent podcast covering New York's National League Baseball team. It is not affiliated in any way with Major League Baseball or the New York Mets. This, this is, is Len and Jeff from Baseball and Barbecue. And the one place to go for New York Mets news, past week game reviews, upcoming series previews, interviews, analysis, opinion, and, and what's, what's going, going down, down on the farm. farm. It's Mets Musings with Gary Mack. So keep the faith, stay optimistic, and let's go Mets. Mets Musings with Gary Mack. Now it's time for some New York Mets baseball talk. Here's Gary Mack bringing you the latest news and analysis from Mets Nation and the world of baseball on another edition of Mets Musings. And hello and welcome to another edition of Mets Musings. I hope you all are doing well out there. You know, we're all stuck in our house now. And wondering what to do with no baseball on TV or radio, no NCAA, no NHL, no NBA. Might I, might I suggest that you go to Amazon, you order a great new book that just came out. It's called The New York Mets, All-Time All-Stars, The Best Players at Each Position for the Amazons. And it is by an old friend of the show, Brian Wright. And Brian is with me tonight to talk about the book. Brian, welcome back to Mets Musings. Hey, thanks, Gary. I guess uh, now is as good a time as ever to, to talk about the Mets and to hopefully pass the time before we get back to normalcy. But uh, yeah, this book uh, came out on February 24th. Uh, and it's uh, kind of it highlights a 30-man roster, a manager, two coaches uh, who are the honorable mention managers, uh, a GM and an owner. Um, the selection for the team was based on many factors, including you know traditional stats, saber metric stats like WAR and, and some defensive run saved um, statistics. Also, impact on the franchise postseason big game performances, single season or career records. Um, also, if someone was good or high impact for a prolonged period of time, um, longevity was not the highest priority. I, I mm -hmm. more looked at someone and said, hey, this particular player at their best, would I want them on a team of this nature? Um, that kind of over, that kind of uh, trumped uh, longevity in some some sorts. Um, sometimes longevity did did play a factor. Uh, also, I had used a little creativity with how I structured certain positions. Um, for instance, pitchers, uh, as most Mets fans know, uh, there's a great uh, disparity in the amount of great uh, starting pitchers the Mets have had as opposed to relief pitchers. So I decided to go with seven starters. Uh, and even that, I let the ones I left out were very worthy of inclusion. Um, I made sure not to have a designated hitter because there were a lot of, you know, you could have a lot of questions with that. Right. Um, I also also made sure to judge these players, or I guess the the, the positions they were um, um, judged upon were the positions in which they played the longest. For instance, Edgardo Alfonso was judged as a second baseman because he's played, even though he played some games at third, he's mostly a second baseman. 
um, Michael Conforto, even though he's currently a right fielder, he's played more games in left field. So I judged him as a left fielder. Um, what I discovered among many things I discovered was that there are various ways to create a team like this. You can use a lot of different criteria. You can just use based on players that you, you loved, uh, mm-hmm. or you could use longevity. Uh, and to me, that's the beauty of a book like this. Um, the way I did it is one way you can do it, but, and it's also a, a way to start a conversation and not end one. Well, and also, um, uh, looking through it, I, you know, uh, naturally there's always room for debate. Somebody might think, you know, somebody, their favorite player was better than another, as <laughs> you were saying. Um, but, uh, you know, you're pretty dead on at every position. I mean, obviously the easiest one is going to be pitcher. Um, because mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think it's any surprise who that's going to be. The greatest of all time, um, met, of course, Tom Seaver. Um, uh, but you know, you have a lot of, uh, general suggestions there. And, uh, I, I did notice that, um, you, you used a lot of statistics and stuff, like you said, and, uh, that, uh, uh, a lot of the plays end up being the fan favorites anyway. Yeah, it does turn out that way. Um, I mean, Tom Seaver was <laughs> about as easy as a pick as I could do. Uh, and a lot of the, and a lot of the pitchers for the most part were pretty easy. When it got down to the fifth, maybe the sixth and seventh starting pitcher, not that I did a rotation, I just made sure to include seven starting pitchers. But once I got to like the sixth and seventh starting pitcher, that became uh, tough because the pitchers that I left out um, were very, like I said, were very worthy of being in there. Right. But when you get to Seaver, Gooden, now Jacob Degrom, Jerry Kuzman, to me those are those are shoe ins. It's it's not a debate. And and when I put those guys in there, I make sure to make I tr- make sure to tell their entire story uh, with the Mets as well as I can put it. And it's interesting with Jacob Degrom, his story is obviously continuing. So it was um, uh, it was kind of interesting to write his his narrative, um, because I, you know, you, you don't normally, you have you most, uh, you haven't really read that yet. Uh-huh. Um, because, because it's progressing right. and it's only in, and you might say it's getting better, but that was kind of the unique aspect of doing this book was kind of writing Jacob deGrom's story yeah. as if it, as if it like is his final, you know, it, it, it's in stone when it certainly isn't, but that's just, the nature of doing a book that's uh, in which a player is current, right? And and I think when all is said and done, if you were to revise this book in ten, fifteen years, I think he's going to have a even higher position in the book. Uh, uh, maybe uh, a right behind a Seaver. I think he's that good, but you know, yeah. like you said, it's very difficult. Now, um, so how did? You went through some of the criteria you used, but how, how did you select? Um, I mean, did you go back to the 62 Mets and, 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 you know, all of those guys, or did you look at it, uh, start with a, a core group that you thought would work and then, uh, you know, prove it sort of like with the numbers or, or how did that exactly work out? Yeah, I made sure to, um, include any player that's ever played with the Mets in my pool of, of options, I guess 
you know, someone like a Ron Hunt who, who came mm-hmm. uh, with the Mets early on and was really their first star. Uh, I considered him and, and uh, although he was not a second baseman, he was certainly an honorable mention. Uh, I made sure to judge him fairly. Um, and, you know, you have certain statistics. It's, you know, it's very hard to compare eras. Um, I did my, my best with that. And there are certain statistics um, that allow for that uh, war, you know, and if it's, a, if it's a hitter, you can use something like OPS plus. Um, if it's a pitcher, you can use ERA plus. Those are statistics that kind of even out um, the, the, uh, the, the time periods in which they play. Um, so I tried to use stats like that. Uh, naturally, if you're playing on, you know, the 62 or 63 Mets, you don't have the opportunity to have big game performances like, you know, say a Tommy Agee had in 1969 mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, uh, Mike Piazza, of course, or, you know, it's you, sometimes you're just dealt the hand uh, that you're given. Right. Um, you have to play, I guess you have to play the hand you're dealt. Um, if you're, you know, for, for a player that played in the early days, uh, you know, they may have been to give, you know, someone like a Frank Thomas, uh, had some good years, but the team was terrible and he never really had a chance right. to shine, maybe more than he could have nonetheless was good for the team that he was on. Right. And then Richie Ashburn had one year, so it's hard to figure him in, mm-hmm. uh, you mm-hmm. know, um, now how difficult was it to, um, f- figure uh, all of this out. I mean, it must have been a lot of work with all the statistics and everything. Or did you have some sort of program that you used to to uh, feed in information to? How did that all work out? Uh, the the biggest uh, the, the I mean, I used uh, Baseball Reference uh, tirelessly, and I can't thank whoever whoever created and updated the site. I can't thank them <laughs> enough. Um, and whoever does uh, UltimateMets.com. Uh, that individual yeah. uh, should be sainted. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I use those two programs. I tried to compare players. You know, I would just maybe jot someone players down when I had a free moment. I mean, literally, I probably had a notepad and just said, um, OK, Ron Darling uh, and David Cohn and Sid Fernandez and Al Leiter, you know, let's compare numbers here and then kind of from that you say okay let me think of like big game performances and and just overall impact and maybe overall total statistics you know i take into account darling's 99 wins which are fourth all time and you may take into account sid fernandez's chase stadium era so there was no particular program i used uh and you're right it, it was a um a tireless process uh, in addition to just writing um to, to figure out the team that was kind of the first part of it Mm-hmm. Um, and to be perfectly honest with you, I still today, I'll like see a player that I left out mentioned and they'll, t- and I'll see like a statistic of his and just go, maybe I should have put him on the team. What do I think? <laughs> and I'll go back and I'll just like start comparing them again, which is a ridiculous thing to do. <laughs> um, because I still feel good about what I did, but you have those, you know, uh, I don't want to say, you know, keep you awake at night moments, but um, they at least make you think again. And that's, again, the beauty of a book like this, it stirs up debates. And it, for me, it stirs up debates in my own head. Right. Of course. And were you surprised at, um, the numbers from anybody? I mean, we know as fans, as Met fans, we know who we like and we know the names, but did, did anyone that you happen to look up surprise you and finish, 
uh, for lack of a better term, higher than you thought they would? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't. I, I always remember John Olward as a great player, um, and, but I didn't realize how you know significantly good he was for just three seasons. I mean, he still has the highest career batting average among Mets. If you take in, you know, if you you know, limit the, or I guess you have to have a minimum amount of the bats, but he does have that. Uh, also has the single season high uh, batting average record in Mets history with the 354 in 1998. Uh, also has the career and single season on base percentage uh, mark in Mets history. And if you take his WAR, uh, which I did, I looked at a lot of times. I, you know, wasn't always a final factor. Um, sometimes it did play a part. And in John Olward's case, his WAR for three seasons was 17.3, which is fantastic. Um, and that kind of stood out and that, I mean, and that, even though he's a good defensive player, his defensive war was barely over zero. So it was mostly offensive. So that really jumped out at me and made me, it reminded me cause I grew up kind of in that era when he was playing. Um, it reminded me how significant he was to the Mets and it was too bad he didn't get to play on the, the world series team, but a guy like him and also a guy like John Matlack who kind of got pushed, uh, to like the third or uh, sometimes the second fiddle. Uh, in the rotation behind Seaver and usually Kuzman. Um, even though his record was not fantastic, it doesn't show up that great. He kind of got shortchanged. Uh, his win total at the Mets was, uh, or I guess he had 82 wins to 81 losses. Uh, but as far as like ERA, complete games, shutouts, uh, they're very good. And in one season in particular, 1974, uh, he had a 2.41 ERA, seven shutouts. Uh, and had a record of 13 and 15, and he had no run support. <laughs> he was kind of like the Jacob deGrom before Jacob deGrom. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, unbelievable with the, the, some of the numbers. But um, any position or, or, or what is the position? Let me see how I want to word this now. What position throughout the Mets history do you think has been their strongest? Where was the most candidates that uh, you felt you could have included? Would it be catcher, first base? Uh... Yeah, well, I mean, without question, it's, if you're uh, talking about any position, it's pitcher. It's pitching, and yeah. Specifically. yeah. If, you're, if you're talking about in the field, like non-pitching position, I would say it was catcher. Um, if you look at Mets history, uh, they've had a lot of strength behind the plate. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talk about Jerry Grody. Uh, if you look at his offensive numbers, they don't stand out in any regard. But just thinking back to the that team and how it was structured, uh, how Gil Hodges structured it with strength up the middle, with Grody, uh, a, you know, a great pitcher like Seaver or Kuzman or Gary Gentry or Nolan Ryan, um, uh, shortstop with Bud Harrelson, center field with Tommy Agee. Uh, I mean, Jerry Grody was as good as anyone in strengthening the middle, uh, specifically from the defensive side and also maturing. Um, may, may not, may have not been, you know, in the nicest way, but he certainly, uh, controlled <laughs> and, and, and matured that pitching staff to what they became. So I don't think you can undervalue what, uh, uh, what Jerry Grody did with the 1969 Mets. I mean, I think that's, uh, I guess I, I should say you can't overestimate it. Um, but, it's yeah so yeah his significance was tremendous uh and then you take a look at John Stearns who followed him who made several all-star teams albeit on teams that were 
uh, lackluster. Um, but he was very good. And then followed by a little bit later on with Gary Carter and then Mike Piazza in the 90s. And even before Mike Piazza, Todd Hundley has the most home runs of any Met in the decade. So mm-hmm. um, it's to the, you know, the Mets have had some, have had a good run at catcher, um, probably more than most people would realize. Well, I have to tell you one thing about Jerry Grody. I saw a lot of him playing, and uh, he was fantastic. You know, Johnny Bench always says that if he was on, if, if Jerry Grody was on the Reds, he'd be playing third base. Yeah. So that goes to tell you oh, something. Yeah. Um, but uh, and it also, I'm amazed just thinking about it that uh, four of the guys you mentioned just now were none of them were homegrown. If you think about uh, Mike Piazza, Gary Carter, Jerry Grody, and John Stearns, all came via trade. Uh, None of them were homegrown except for Hundley. Um, Mm -hmm. And Hundley, there was always that little question about steroids, so we don't know about that home run mark either. But, um, yeah, uh, yeah, I've always been a big catching fan, and and, uh, they have been very strong. in in looking at the book, I would have to say almost that uh, second base might be one of the weakest positions. Would you go along with that, or is that just my uh, interpretation? My when I did um, when I did the book, and it, it's interesting because I do have three second basemen, and it was a uh, tough decision uh, because uh, Edgar Alfonso is pretty clearly the starter. Right. Um, but behind him, you could say any one of a few guys from Wally Backman to Daniel Murphy, Felix Neon, Ron Hunt, Jeff Kent, um, n- none of which were like, you know, uh, were tremendously standout players. I mean, they all had their moments and made their contributions in some respect. Um but that was a tough choice, and I actually went with three. If I had to say the weakest, as far as depth is concerned, uh, the weakest position was shortstop because um, Jose Reyes, great player, easy starter, Bud Harrelson, uh, tremendous defensively. Uh, but beyond that, I mean, you had Ray Ardonias, who was a very good defensive player, to say great defensive player, was not very good offensively. In fact, probably brought the team down with his batting. And beyond that, I don't even know who you go to. So, uh, I mean, Frank Tavares, I don't know. But uh, so to me, shortstop was the one that had the least amount of depth. I'd have to take a look and see if like, as far as maybe like war or what have you or over overall performance, right. how they compare because, because Reyes, second most hits in Mets history, yeah. his second bat, I don't really care for, but nonetheless was great. Harrelson <laughs> defensively was fantastic. Um, but beyond that, not a lot. And second base, um, I thought had a little bit more more depth, but maybe over maybe overall, if you compare the two, maybe shortstop is a little better. Uh, yeah, I think you're. I, I think or worse, depending on how you look at. It. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I think now that you mention it, I think you're you're a hundred percent correct. I I think because when you look when you think about shortstop, you tend to think of Jose Reyes for the eight ten years whatever it was he with 12 whatever he was here and think about harrelson and, and the length of time he was here and you know you kind of think of those two and i think everybody else kind of gets thrown in the, the the mix you know you forget the years in between 
Whereas second, yeah. I think there's been long, uh, shorter durations for uh, players <laughs> there. Um, Alfonso was a fantastic player. Um, but uh, And Felix Mion was there too. But, uh, you know, um, it, it's funny because when you think of the two championship teams, they really had, uh, to a certain extent, they had defense up at the second and the th- and the uh, shortstop um, on mm-hmm. both teams. Eighty six is a little questionable with Backman and Tuffle, not the best of glove men. Um, mm-hmm. But of course, you had in sixty nine, you had Al Weiss and Ken Boswell, and uh, mm-hmm. Boswell was the offensive guy, and Weiss was really the hitter. But you had Harrelson and um, Rafael Santana in eighty six. So uh, yeah. you know, go figure, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, 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 those two uh, positions up the middle have not been tremendous offensively. I mean, Alfonso is, was um, easily the best offensive player um, at second base with mm-hmm. Murphy behind him. Uh, and Backman, you know, was a switch hitter, but was really only good from from uh, from one side of the plate, which is why they got Tuffle uh, right. to kind of combat that. So, But yeah, defensively not uh, as great. Um, Alfonso was a was a Gold Glove worthy player. Murphy, we all remember his adventures in this infield. Uh, Backman, and, you know, not as maybe not as great defensively. He improved uh, over the years. Um, he was not good early on, uh, but yeah. So, it, but you're right about uh, the two championship seasons with uh, in '69. I mean, the '69 Mets, as we all know, they did not uh, they lacked for great offense. They relied on uh, pitching and, and defense, defense and it worked to, to almost perfection. Right. Right. And, and they were truly, that was a team effort there with, mm-hmm. with fantastic pitching. Uh, I, I'm a little surprised that Lucas Duda wasn't the greatest first baseman of all time. What happened? <laughs> oh, I forgot. I forgot about no. <laughs> I forgot about, I didn't realize, uh, how much I was, I was at a, uh, I was at the spring training game on last Wednesday, which, is the most recent Mets game we'll be seeing for the foreseeable future. Um, and I didn't realize how much Matt Adams, who now wears number 21, looks a lot like Lucas Duda. Um, uh, it was very interesting. But Lucas Duda was, I mean, he could hit six home runs in one week and then not hit a home run for another month. <laughs> I always liked him, though. I, I always thought he, he kind of got a raw deal being moved to left field and then back to first base and and uh, I was not a Ike Davis guy, so uh, uh, I guess uh, I kind of won out in the end because Duda got the job. But uh, I, I was kind of sad to see him go. I thought he was a pretty decent guy and a good, pretty decent ball player. And I think he made himself into a good first baseman, but uh, he didn't make the book, so the heck with him. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to give everything away in the book because it's such an interesting book and. Uh, uh, it's easy to read, and um, any uh, surprises in the relief pitches, or was that pretty much uh, we could probably guess at that pretty much, right? I would uh, would think so. I think some people um, might have uh, added, you know, one or one of the uh, honorable mention I chose. Um, I don't. I know the other one, uh, Armando Nitos. I'll just say it. Uh, I know they wouldn't put him on there, and and I certainly didn't. Um, some people feel that Billy Wagner might be a, a, a candidate. Um, 
I thought he was he was good, but not probably not worthy of of the three best relievers. Um, I felt pretty good about who I chose uh, for that. It, it uh, not to give it away, but they were they all happened to be left-handers. It was just pure coincidence. Um, I and they all were kind of were in different eras of relief pitching where um, it was you know it evolved from like a multi-inning deal to uh, eventually a one-inning situation or maybe a little bit more. Um, so. You know, they all, all in all, it seems interesting. They all had very lengthy, uh, careers, uh, with the Mets. I mean, uh, I mean, Tom McGraw, uh, I can't remember how many years he pitched with the Mets before going to the Phillies, but he was there for a while. And then Jesse Orozco, um, had just overall just a really, really long career. Um, and John Franco, 14 years with the Mets. Uh, as I, as I now just reveal the three relief pitchers, but, um, <laughs> But yeah, so I felt pretty good uh, about those three. Uh, it was not as much of a debate as I thought it might be. Uh, now you you picked the the manager, and uh, what sort of criteria did you use for the manager that that you were going to pick? Because uh, they they really now they've had, you know, a couple of really good managers. And I'm talking about. Uh, of course, uh, Gil Hodges and, and Bobby Valentine, Davey Johnson, Terry Collins, um, really are the ones that, that, that kind of stand out. What, what criteria did you use to pick the manager? And, and while we're at it, well, no, let's, let's do the manager first, then I'll ask. Yeah. I mean, my criteria for that, um, did not lie, and maybe this will give it away, um, did not always, uh, was not always based on winning. I mean, winning, of course, mattered, um, but the amount of wins was not as important as the influence this per- the uh, the person had on the players and the team itself. Um, I feel like, you know, and we all know managing and the role of a manager has changed so much, like relief pitching has changed over the years um, to where now a manager seems to just get, you know, the, 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 uh, the directions from upstairs or from someone else. Um, but, you know, I like to, I tried to judge these particular managers in the scope, like all the players in mm-hmm. the, the scope of when they did what they did with the Mets. Um, and, you know, you can always have an impact on your players, no matter if, if you're giving, you know, if you're the one giving direction or, or not all these, all three of these, uh, these men were, very influential on the team. I don't think you can deny that they all were kind of, you know, the buck stopped with them for the most part. Um, but the bottom line was impact, influence on the team, um, the resonance that the, that this person has uh, with the players. Um, that that kind of was the driving force for who I selected. And what made you decide to select an owner? Oh, I mean, I will. So the the owner I chose, uh, and I don't mind revealing this, was, was Joan Payson, and um, had no issue with that because I feel that Joan Payson should be honored mm-hmm. more in Mets history. I agree uh, for not only being the first woman to purchase a, a sport major sports franchise with her own money without inheriting it, um, but also I think she really created. I don't say created, but kind of established that uh, loyalty. Um, and uh, spirit that the Mets still have to this day. I mean, she was one, she was not a, you know, a particularly hands-on owner, was not meddling, more importantly, 
Uh, it's important these days. Um, and <laughs> she was also well respected, very well respected by the players. She also sat, you know, in the, you know, in a box seat. She was, she always wanted to be amongst the fans. And I think the fans could relate to her in some sense, aside from, you know, her bottom line. Um, they could, they could kind of see her and say, Hey, she's kind of one of us in a sense. So, mm-hmm. um, I had no issue with making her the owner. I think, um, she, you know, was one of the first inductees into the Mets Hall of Fame and very worthy of that. And like I said, kind of laid the foundation for this loyalty that the Mets have been so known for. You know, it's funny because for you younger people out there that may be listening, the owner's box used to be like essentially right next to the dugout. It used to be a box seat and it used to be like four seats or whatever. They didn't have the suites and all of that in, in uh, the early days. And Mrs. Payson, uh, as you said, what an interesting woman, uh, terrific lady. She was at, you know, every home game practically until she got too ill to uh, to attend games anymore. Uh, but um, she was a true fan, loved the New York Giants, was brokenhearted when they left New York and uh, really uh, had a chance to bring the Mets in here and really was, uh, as Brian said, really a loyal uh fan and and really was good to the players and to the uh to the uh, uh fans as well and and you know the older players will tell you how much they loved her and how much they meant to her yeah no absolutely they um yeah there was a she created kind of a family atmosphere um you know players even even though they were very bad in the early years they were players that really enjoyed playing for for her um and she was a very you know philanthropic uh person mm-hmm. i mean had a lot of uh, uh interest outside of baseball but yeah she loved the giants and then of course loved the mets uh and uh, and really was was in was in involved at the point to the point where she didn't get you know too involved uh but she was she was very present uh without being meddling which was uh, very important and let's do an honorable mention chapter uh and uh, call it mascots, and and uh, we had uh, Homer the dog and Miss Rangold, and <laughs> and the original Mister Met, and uh, Mister Met survives to this day. <laughs> yeah, wasn't there? They had a wasn't there a mule like Mister? I'm trying to remember the name. It was, the, I thought it was I thought the Mets had a mule mascot. Um, Maybe I'm getting. No, Charlie Finley had a mule with the Oakland oh. uh, or the Kansas City Athletics. And uh, the Mets, I think, it, I don't know if it's 62 or 63. It was in the Polo Grands, definitely. They had um, Home of the Dog, and yeah. uh, Homer would sit on, like, a table behind home plate or, or in, in the area by home plate and had a sign on. The, I, there's a famous picture, yeah. Let's Go Mets or something. It's on the sign. And then of course, so, yeah, no, you know, I was going to say, I'm looking at, uh, I just did a search. They had metal the mule. Oh, okay. Uh, it, it was a short period of time in 1976. Uh, uh, with, with Mets mascot. I, it's okay. Cause it was so brief. <laughs> I don't know why I know that. 
Uh, and uh, uh, and Wrangle had Miss Wrangle for a while. It was like a beauty contest, and and she would show up at the games and stuff because Wrangle was the big sponsor of the Mets in those days. Yeah. Uh, Wrangle would be oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brian, it's a terrific book, and uh, I this is probably going to be a stupid question, um, because now with the world the way it is, and we are on hold, so I. <laughs> Did you have any book signing scheduled, or uh, <laughs> what's the deal? Yeah, no, I did. I had a plan to go up to New York um, to do a appearance. Uh, I, was, I had an interview with WCBS, uh, an appearance at the New York Public Library on the 24th, mm-hmm. um, and an interview with another podcast uh, alongside um, uh Matt Silverman uh, on the next day and was hoping to be on uh, uh, New York One TV uh, station around opening day. Um, all of this obviously around opening day, but right. all of it is is on hold for the time being, and understandably so. Right. Um, the hope is that we can, you know, kind of uh, get over, get through this. Uh, hopefully, everyone, you know, can remain relatively healthy, and we can eventually get back to normal because. Uh, as as tough as it is for you know we all have ish, you know all have things that are uh, um, kind of you know in in limbo or being put on hold because of what's going on and and I think uh, um, I'm certainly understanding of that but hoping to get back up to New York once everything returns to normalcy. Now um, you've heard the reports and everything. What's your gut feeling about uh, about a, a season? Are we going to have a season? I you know I'm. Certainly not. I would not call myself an expert in this in this medicine field or what have you. Or the, what uh, I don't know. You know, I, I would would not hasten to make a prediction. Um, and any prediction I, I make would be hopeful because right. it seems like every day, uh, as we're talking here on Tuesday, it's just more and more uh, disheartening news. Um, so I, you know, I, I it started out with you know a two week delay, and now it's you know at least nothing for eight weeks and I hear other stories about, you know, they may not even play the all-star game. Um, I, you know, I, I'm just, I can only, all I can say is I'm hopeful uh, that we start the beginning of June. And I think my hope is that the best worst case scenario, if that's something is that at least half a season is played. Um, Cause I think that's enough of a chunk of baseball to kind of, uh, be a good measure of how teams are and you can kind of have it from that have a legitimate playoff race and a legitimate postseason uh both of which i hope the mets are heavily involved in so um all i can just be is an optimist uh at this point it's hard to be an optimist because every day it just as i said brings disheartening news it's but, bad news uh, i'm still holding out hope that we can get a, a good chunk of the season uh going in the relatively near future and by that i mean june yeah yeah, it looks like June, if everything goes well, will be uh, yeah. a, about the point in time where they're going to start. And uh, it'd be interesting what that does to the uh, the draft and, and the minor leagues. Um, you know, here in New York, we also have the Cyclones, which is the short season, and they usually start up uh, in June, towards the end yeah. of June. So whether or not they'll... Uh, get that in um i would think that they would be on target to get in as long as they can get back into uh spring training you know um at least 
what are they saying now? Eight weeks or something. So I, it's yeah. still, you know, it's still kind of up in the air. You really don't know when they say eight weeks. Does that mean that they're looking at eight weeks in the to, for the start of the season, or, or they're going to have to use a couple of weeks for spring training? So does that mean oh, sure. that's that's put on to that? You know, it's very confusing right now. But of course, everything is as you said. Yeah, every, everything is very murky right now. I think we're all in the same boat there. Well, the book is New York Mets, all-time All-Stars, the best players in each position for the Amazons. Uh, it's written by Brian Wright, and I want you to all go pick it up. It's a, it's an interesting book. You're going to have some debate, but uh, that's okay. That's why he wrote the book. It's that kind of book that you can uh, – uh, Skip around if you like, and uh, as everybody knows, I love those kind of books because you can pick out a, a position that you you want to start at, and then work your way around all the others, or just read it from cover to cover. And Brian, good luck with the book, and uh, thanks for coming on tonight. Thanks so much, Gary. It was great to be on with you. And hopefully, you'll get to uh, Long Island uh, sometime this year on a, on a on a book tour, and we'd be able to look you up and say hi. Yeah, and no, I'll be sure to post something on social media uh, if I if when that happens, if and when that happens, uh, on my Twitter at BrianWright86. So hopefully, very soon, I'll I'll know more information. <laughs> All right, and you can get it at Amazon and every fine bookstore. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Amazon, a lot of online booksellers, and if you want a signed copy, you can direct message me, uh, again, at BrianWright86, and I'm happy to provide a signed copy for you. All righty. Thank you so much, and I will be back right after this. Looking for great Cardinals talk? Then check out Conversations with C70. My name is Daniel Shopdaw, and I talk with some of the great bloggers on the Internet today about their teams. It always goes back to the Cardinals. Find the latest episode on my website, www.cardinal70.com or at baseballpodcast.net. Baseball and BBQ, your place for interesting baseball talk, opinions, and history. Baseball and BBQ, your place for barbecue recipes, tips, and interviews from the world of barbecue. If you like baseball and if you like barbecue, then tune in to Baseball and BBQ. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and BaseballTalkRadio.com, along with Mets Musings and other great baseball podcasts. With all the Mets news, it is the news from around the world and around the corner. Here's Gary Mack. And what can I say? Uh, There is no Mets news. There's really nothing to report any further. But I hope you enjoyed our interview. It really is a terrific book. New York Mets, all-time All-Stars, best players at each position for the Amazons. Brian Wright is the author. Go check it out, Amazon, as he said. Uh, Shoot him a message on Twitter, and he will sign a copy, and you can buy it right from him. All right, so um, that's going to wrap it up for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Brian Wright, once again for coming on, taking time from his busy schedule. And I want to thank you all for listening uh, on CastBox, iTunes, uh, Apple Play, Google Play, YouTube, wherever you listen to the podcast, hit the subscribe button. It helps me grow the show and expand to new listeners. And please take care of yourself. Take your meshes. Uh, stay at home. Wash your hands. Um, 
use wipes if you have them. If you go somewhere, if you have to go somewhere, just try to think of everybody else. The quicker we can beat this stinking disease, this virus, the quicker we're going to have baseball and all of our lives back again. So please take the precautions that everybody suggests. Um, We're all in this together. We're all vulnerable. Just use your head and uh, stay healthy. And until next time, remember, keep the faith. Stay optimistic. There will be baseball. And let's go Mets. See you next time on another edition of Mets Music.